Welcome to the Calvary Community Church Podcast. For more content and information about Calvary, please visit our website at calvaryhouston.com. Well, this morning, um, this was a first for me. I actually had two sermons ready to go this morning, and um, it wasn't until just a little while ago that I decided which one I was going to do. So the story behind that is I had a sermon ready, and it was the one I'm not going to do. It was going to be a doozy. Let me tell you, it was going to be, it was going to be a good one. But uh, this week, I, I'm, I'm teaching a class on Wednesday nights um, called uh, Discover Vision, and it's about Calvary's vision, intimacy, community, and kingdom. And during this uh, session this past Wednesday, I had a couple of people in the class say, you need to teach session one of this class on a Sunday morning sometime. Well, it just so happened, I always say, well, I'm preaching this Sunday, but I've got another really powerful anointed message that I want to give. And they said, no, just, just consider you really need to do session one of this class on a Sunday morning. So I had prayed about it, and I just thought that was the direction we need to go. So even the slide guys have two different sermon title slides back there. So um, I'm going to do the one that's entitled, Intimacy with the God Who Wows Us, Woos Us, and Wins Us. Intimacy with the God Who Wows Us, He Woos Us, and He Wins Us. So that will be the slide, just in case you're wondering which sermon I'm going to do. I also had a, a prophetic word given to me this morning that the Lord said very clearly that I was not supposed to preach both sermons this morning. Somebody gave me that word. I'm not sure. It's probably my mother-in-law, but I don't know for sure. I can't remember. But she said, the Lord said you are not to preach both of those sermons. I said, okay, I'll just make the one sermon twice as long. So then we're, we're good to go. Well, Lord, I just ask right now that you would uh, just anoint this time. Again, Holy Spirit, we know that you're here, you're in us, you're with us, you're around us. I just pray right now that you would put grace upon my lips to speak your word with clarity, to speak truth. We pray right now that your word this morning would run swiftly and be glorified in this place to all who are listening online. that through your word, we can fall more in love with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this message is called, The God Who Wows Us, Woos Us, and Wins Us. And this in relationship to intimacy with God, intimacy with a God like this. It's stunning to me when I read passages like Genesis chapter 1, where it says, God speaks and light happens out of nothing. When God speaks, worlds and galaxies are created. I mean, this powerful, majestic God is also the God who says, I want to be close friends with you. I want you to draw near to my heart. And that reality of such a big God, but yet there's such a, a, a wooing and a wowing of our hearts that he's longing for us to be so close and near to him, even though he's so powerful. That reality to me just it blows my mind, and I think that's part of what the Lord may even just want to do this morning is just, just to wow us, just to make our minds go, whoa. Oh my goodness, God is awesome. If you guys leave here today and you're not thinking, 
God is pretty awesome, then I haven't done my job as a communicator. That's what I'm wanting to communicate, and that's what I want you to get out of this. So intimacy with God, when we talk about intimacy or nearness or deep friendship, when we say intimacy with God, we're talking about a deep friendship with God. And intimacy with God starts with God himself. We have to know who God is and what is he like if we want to journey into deep intimacy with him. We, as mankind, were actually created for intimacy with God. So friendship with God was not something he decided after the fact. He didn't just make man and be like, oh, now what are we going to do? Like, what are we going to do with these little mud people running around? And like, we've got to find something to do. I guess we'll just go make friends with them. It wasn't an afterthought. He made us, he fashioned us and formed us for the purpose of deep intimacy with him. But to many in our culture, interaction with God, when we say interaction and intimacy with God, it's mostly about a God who wants to fix something in their lives. And we think about, well, how does God interact? If you were just go ask the next hundred people you see this week out in the grocery store, uh, when, when God interacts with man, what, what is he doing? And most people, even a lot of believers, would think, well, he's, he's up there looking to see if we're doing bad or good. Um, when we do bad, he shakes his finger at us and, you know, he's kind of upset at us and he's going to punish us one day. And and all the people who don't believe in him, he's going to punish them in hell. I mean, God's interaction with man for most people is a negative interaction. It's related to, he's trying to fix something in me that's messed up. And, and he does do that. He does fix stuff in us that's messed up. But I want to submit to you that God interacted with man even before sin entered the picture. Before there was anything to fix, before there was any stuff, he still interacted with man. The Bible says he would walk in the cool of the day in the garden with Adam and Eve. So before before Adam and Eve sinned, God still interacted with them. So interaction and intimacy with God is not based upon, well, I'm just messed up and he wants to fix me. It's based on the fact that he loves friendship with you. And you were created to interact with him in that place of intimacy. Do you know that even from birth, before we are born, when we're in the mother's womb, we know that we were created to interact with God? Did you know that in the first week of pregnancy, before you even know you're pregnant, the thing that will end up becoming the inner ear is the first thing that begins to form in that little body. The thing that at one point will become the ear is the first thing that begins to form in the body. What does that tell us? That tells us from the very beginning, he goes, I'm creating you to hear me. I'm creating you to listen. I want to interact with you. I want to speak with you. And this is what I've created you to do. Every one of you in this room can hear from the God who has Genesis 1 on his resume. You can hear from him. He wants to speak with you. John chapter 10, verse 27, says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There's something about that hearing, that interacting with God through his word and him speaking to us. He goes, I, my, I created you for this. You are my sheep, and I created you to hear my voice. So as we journey deeper into personal and interactive intimacy with God, we are going to discover that God is a God who wows us with his beauty. 
He, I'm sorry, he wows us with his beauty. He woos us with his gladness and pleasure, and he wins us with his love. Since I stumbled over that, let me read that again. As we journey into intimacy with God, we are going to discover that God is a God who wows us with his beauty. He woos us with his gladness and pleasure, and he wins us with his love. If you want to put it a little bit more simply, God is beautiful, he has a glad heart, and he really enjoys you. God is beautiful, he's got a glad heart, and he enjoys you. So let's look at each one of those three things. God, a God who wows us with his beauty. When we speak of God's beauty, we're speaking of two things. We're speaking both of his appearance and his attributes. Everybody say appearance. Say attributes. When we think of God's beauty or God's glory, those are two things we're talking about, his appearance and his attributes. So when Moses asked God, God, show me your beauty, show me your glory. In the book of Exodus, you can go read that story. He goes, God, would you show me your glory? And again, when you see the word glory, just think beauty, just think radiant beauty. He said, God, I want to see it. Show me your beauty. And God, in essence, said, okay, I'll show you my beauty. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm patient. Long-suffering. I'm abounding in love. And I could almost hear Moses going, okay, Lord, I didn't ask about your attributes. I asked about your beauty. I want to see your beauty. God said, you want to see my beauty? Here's who I am. This is me. I'm a God who's abounding in mercy and love and kindness and goodness. Moses might have just said, okay, you're not very helpful. Is there anybody else up there that can help me? <laughs> but it was like, that's, Lord, you're, you're giving me a theology lesson. I want to see your beauty. He goes, this is my beauty. This is my radiant glory. God's attributes. But also when we speak about beauty, we're speaking about his appearance. Just go read Revelation 4 this week. That's one of your homework assignments. Go read Revelation chapter 4 and just be wowed by the physical beauty of the appearance of God. It says he shines like a jasper stone, like a sardius stone. From his throne, from his very being, there's lightning and thunder. There's an emerald rainbow orb all around the throne. There's a sea of glass like crystal reflecting all the light and all. This is fantastic stuff. Just go read about God's physical appearance, his, the beauty of the Lord, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. This God who wows us with his beauty, his, both his attributes and his appearance. So a study about the beauty of God is not just about, and, and you guys have heard this many, many times, when we study God, when we study the word, and particularly studying about the beauty of God, it's not just about having an informed mind, but about, it's about having an inflamed heart. You see, we can get all the, the stuff, all the facts, all the scriptures. We can memorize all the verses. And we can have it all up here, and we can win all the little Bible B stuff. But it's, if it's not causing our hearts to come alive and love and passion, then we're missing something. Because I promise you, the day that you stand before the Lord, he's not going to give you a test. He's not going to pass out a test and say, can you recite all the facts that you know about me? He's going to say, did you learn to love? Where was your heart? 
And so when we, when we think about topics like this, studying God's beauty and his attributes, don't think about memorizing facts. Think about falling in love. Beholding God's glory should always lead us to fall more in love with him. So it's a good practice for us to ponder, to think, to meditate, and to study on the divine appearance and attributes of God. Just want to invite you this morning just to let your mind be overwhelmed by the incomprehensible greatness of God. And then just stand there in the mystery of the Godhead and worship. Embrace the unknowing and simply bow down in reverent awe. See, we're not very good with mystery in our culture. We don't, we enjoy mystery movies, but only if they resolve, right? We have to have resolution. But with God, if you can resolve God, if you can wrap your mind around God, it's not God you're thinking about. It's something completely other than, because God is completely other than. But we don't like to stand in the mystery. We like to know. We like to know things, right? And we don't have to wonder about anything anymore. We've got Google. I mean, we, do, we don't have to wonder. In some ways, having all that information at our fingertips has dulled down this mysterious thing called God because, again, we just have facts. If I need to know something about God, I'll just Google it. If I need to know something about something, I'll just Google it. But let me tell you, God is beyond everything. God is beyond Google. He's beyond your ability to comprehend. Our little peanut brains cannot hold the greatness and the majesty of this wild, uncreated, loving God. He is so big, so much bigger than you can imagine. So it's okay not to know. It's okay just to sit there and go, man, I just can't even comprehend. I'm just going to worship. When something's mysterious about God and you can't figure it out, just worship. Say, thank you for the mystery. Thank you that I cannot figure you out. We also should not view God's attributes as a part of who God is, but rather how God is. Let me say that again. When we talk about God's attributes, his love, his mercy, his kindness, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his justice, when we think about the attributes of God, it's not necessarily attributes that are a part of him. They actually are how he is. In other words, God doesn't possess certain attributes. Rather, God is attributes. God is all that he is. And all that God is does all that God does. All that God is does all that God does. In other words, God does not suspend one of his attributes to exercise another. He doesn't cease to be merciful when he exercises justice. Is that making sense? So all that God is does all that God, he is all in. He is all in in everything that he does. This is the God that says, I want you to draw near to me. We think about who God is, God's attributes and his appearance. There are three words that we can sum up all of God's attributes. Holy, holy, and holy. All that God is, all that God does, we can wrap those up into three words. Holy, holy, holy. These are the words that are being sung around the throne of God as they gaze upon his beauty and appearance and attributes. As they gaze upon God himself, all they can do is cry, holy, 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 
is the Lord God Almighty. Think about that for just a second. There are creatures around the throne of God that God created and fashioned and formed that are covered in eyeballs. I like to call them the eyeball guys. I don't know if they like that nickname or not. I may answer to them one day. They may say, yeah, I'm not really, wasn't really fond of the eyeball guy. But I like to call them the eyeball guys. They are created, these beings are created with eyeballs. It says even under their wings, in front and back, they're covered in eyes. It says they're even covered eyes without and within. I'm not even sure what that means. How can you have eyeballs inside? I don't know. But they're covered in eyes. This is Revelation chapter 4. Again, that's one of your reading assignments. Revelation chapter 4. These eyeball guys stand before the throne of God forever. Now, why would God create eyeball guys who were covered in eyes to stand before his throne forever? What do you do with eyes? You see. You behold. There are guys who do nothing but see. They eyeballs everywhere before the throne to behold his beauty. That's all they do. I mean, that's at the top of their job description. When you apply for that job, first of all, you got to get a bunch of eyeballs sewn on you or something. But then when you apply for that job, the first thing is behold God. Look at him. And as they gaze night and day, they never stop seeing night and day. Therefore, the, the, the scripture says they never stop singing night and day. They never stop singing holy, 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 because they never stop seeing holiness. It's like, we're wowed by your beauty. Holy, holy. And as if they turn their eye and they look back. Oh, whoa, holy, holy, holy. Oh, my goodness, there he is again. Holy. They can't contain themselves. This majestic God who shines in radiant light. The scripture says he's wrapped in light as a garment. He's just overflowing with beauty. And their job description is just to be wowed by this majestic God. I want to meet the eyeball guys. But do you notice something about them? Revelation chapter 4. That it's the ones who never stop seeing, never stop singing. In other words, they behold God, and what they behold, something gets stirred up in them to give praise back to the one they behold. You see, studying God's beauty and God's attributes, again, is not about passing a test or a quiz. It's about having our hearts alive in God. It's about having our hearts expanded, having our hearts just overflowing with love and adoration for God. In fact, 1 Timothy 6, chapter 6, or chapter 6, verse 16 says, Who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see? This is God. He's described as dwelling in unapproachable light. Let's just think about that for a minute. 
God's beauty is such that he goes, my beauty radiates off of me so much that the light that's produced by my glory, you can't even get close to it. I'm so beautiful. I'm so glorious. It's like unapproachable light. But then think about this. He also says, draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. How is it that a God who is unapproachable says, I want you to approach me? Guys, we sung about it this morning. Through Jesus, he made a way for us to enter into the glory of God. Think about that for a minute. Have you ever, have you ever been around a big bonfire or like a big flame, a big fire? The heat and the light radiate off of it. You got to scoot back a little bit, right? You get too close to it. It's like, ah, it's hot. <laughs> it's bright. God says, I shine brighter than a thousand suns. Come close to me. That's a mystery. It says, no man can see God, but I want you to behold my beauty. Come close. Come near to me. Beloved, when we get close to him, we don't have to worry about getting burned. Because I know three guys that stood in a fire with him and didn't get burned at all. Oh, God. God is just, he's so stunning. Though he dwells in unapproachable light, he in his mercy and his gracious mercy has chosen to reveal himself to us. God's glory is so radiant that he's described as being unapproachable. And yet it is this God who beckons us to come close to him. That'll never get old to me. But God also, as we journey into intimacy with him, God doesn't just wow us with beauty, the beauty of his attributes and his appearance. God also woos us. Again, he goes, yes, I'm big, I'm awesome, I'm beautiful, but I want to woo you into my heart. I want to draw you in close to me. How does he do that? He does it in a number of ways, but what we're going to talk about today is he, he woos us with his gladness and pleasure. There's two other words. Everybody say gladness. Everybody say pleasure. Gladness and pleasure. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But to the Son... He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than all of your companions. Now, if you guys have ever heard me preach a message ever, you've probably heard this passage or at least heard what I'm about to say. This passage tells us, this is Hebrews, actually quoting Psalm 45. It says that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness more than all of his companions. Let me ask you this. Who are Jesus' companions? This is class time. You can speak out. You don't have to raise your hand. We are, right? We're his brothers and sisters. We are his companions. So the Bible says that Jesus had more gladness than any other human being to ever live. Let me say it this way. Jesus was the happiest man to ever walk the face of the earth. But if we're honest, when, sometimes when we read through the Gospels, 
At least I do. I picture stuff. Sometimes I picture him saying some of those things with just a sour old scowl on his face. I don't know why. That just, you know, it's just that Jesus, like, I am Jesus. You know, you watch all those movies from the 60s and 70s, the Jesus movies, and thank God for the Jesus movies for the fruit that's been through there. But that Jesus looks mad, angry, and frustrated, and he looks like a sad sucker. I'm just telling you. How long, Father, must I put up with these? You know, it's just, that's not Jesus. Jesus was the happiest man to ever live. The scriptures say that kids kept trying to run up to every time Jesus would sit down and pray and sit down and teach and preach, the kids would try to get to him, to play with him. And the disciples, the holy disciples were like, uh, excuse me, kids, you need to back up, back up. There's a holy man over there. We just, just, just be quiet now, kids. And Jesus said, what are y'all doing? Let the kids come to me. Let them play. Let them come. Have you ever met a kid that was attracted to a sourpuss? You ever met a kid that says, oh, let's go play with that man. He looks mean and angry. Mm. Why would the kids be attracted to Jesus? He was probably goofy. He was smiling. He probably told jokes, played pranks. That's what kids like. Kids like clowns. Well, most kids. Some kids. Well, a few kids like clowns. But the point is, the point is Jesus was happy. The kids were attracted to him. They wanted to play. And he goes, let them come. See, sometimes I don't think we, God really wants us to be holier than thou. He wants, he wants us to be happier than thou. You say, you're all caught up trying to be, trying to be a holy this and holy that. I just want you to be happy. And guys, can I tell you, it's actually holiness that is happiness. It's, they're not mutually exclusive. The more you're like Jesus, Jesus was the happiest man to ever live. So if I want to become more like Jesus, guess what? I'm going to be happy. As much as I love Eeyore, I don't think Eeyore's in heaven right now. I don't. I, I just, just sour, just... Mm. He's cute, but I don't think he's there. Because Jesus, if you're like Jesus, you're going to be happy. Also, God's not just happy. Psalm 1611, one of my other favorite verses, says, You will show me, O God, the path of life, and at your right hand, somebody finish that, are what? Pleasures evermore. At God's right hand are pleasures you could say it this way, the closer you are to God, the more pleasure there is. But again, we think holiness, well, if I'm holy, I just walk a straight line with a frown on my face that is holy. No, God says, holiness, you, you want to be next to me? You want to be in my presence? Oh, there's going to be joy and gladness overflowing where I am. That's God. That's the God who says, draw near to me. The God who's full of life. Did you know that there are over 500 verses in the Bible that talk about God's gladness and pleasure? There are over 500 verses in the Bible that talk about God's gladness and pleasure. Just for some context, that's more than the combined verses of Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon put together. 
You think God wants us to know that he's glad and has full, and is full of pleasure? That's over half of Paul's epistles. That's a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about God's gladness and pleasure. And what I'm going to do this week, I'm going to post on the, the sermon notes, I will post a, a link. I've actually gone through and written out the, the address in the, in the Scripture with some explanatory notes of all of the 500 verses for you. So if you're like, well, if there's that many, I've never seen them. Well, you're going to see them this week because I'm going to put the notes up there. I've got all 500 of them there. And what I did in my Bible is I took a highlighter, that I, a color of a highlighter that I had never used in any other parts of my Bible. So it's the only one. It's exclusive. I highlighted all 500 of those verses in this one particular color. I went from Genesis 1 to the end. And so now when I flip through my Bible, it, the, the color was purple, by the way. When I flip through my Bible and I see purple, I know it's a scripture about God's gladness and pleasure. And it's all over the place. There are some places where it would have been better if I just didn't highlight the part that spoke of because there's so much purple. I mean, everywhere I flip, there's purple right there. All of these verses about how glad God is, how he has a happy heart. He's full of pleasure. This is what he wants for you. 1 Timothy 1 Verse 11 says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. This was Paul talking, writing to Timothy. According to the glorious gospel, here's the phrase I want you to get, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Do you know what that word blessed means? It literally means happy. The glorious gospel of the happy God. Let me put it this way. What's the word gospel mean? Anybody know what the word gospel means? Say it again. So the gospel means good news. So the glorious gospel, the glorious good news of the happy God. That's the gospel. In fact, I want us to be so bold as to say this. If God is not glad-hearted, it's not the gospel. Because Paul says, here's the glory of the gospel. God's happy. He has a glad heart. He's not mad at you. He's not angry with you. He's not frustrated with you. That's the glory. It's the beauty of the gospel. If God is not happy, it's not good news for us. I'm just going to tell you right now. If God is impatient, he has no mercy, no grace, no love, no tenderness, it is not good news for us. And if the gospel means good news, that means that a gospel a message that says God's not happy, or if we don't have that joy of God in our theology, it's, it's not the full gospel. But God's not only just happy, although he is, he's also full of pleasure. All right, I want you to turn in your Bibles. How much time do I got? I still got time for my second sermon too. This is going great. Turn to the book, turn to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter eight. Oh, this is fun. Y'all having fun yet? Good, because that was just my intro so far, so we still got a lot more fun to go. Proverbs chapter 8. We're going to be looking mostly at verses 30 and 31, but I'm going to back up and start at verse 24. In Proverbs chapter 8, Solomon, or the writer of this proverb, is writing about wisdom. 
And either knowingly or unknowingly, he, I believe he slips into some prophetic insight and gives us a picture of the interplay between the Father and the Son before creation. So before Genesis 1. You just think Genesis 1 was the first thing we have in Scripture? Proverbs 8 actually gives us a picture of some of the stuff that was going on before and at creation. He's writing about wisdom, but again, I think all, all Scripture is, is spirit-breathed. The Holy Spirit will begin to speak through Solomon and the, or the writer. I, I, guess, I assume this was Solomon. Let me just read this, and I'll make a couple of points to you. So I'll start in verse 24. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world. Okay, so this sounds like pre-Genesis 1, correct? Everybody follow me so far? It's before all the worlds, before the mountains, before everything, before all that stuff happened. So it gives us some time context. Verse 27, when he had prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, this is creation, stuff's happening. When he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundation of the earth, verse 30, then I was beside him, as a master craftsman. All right, let's just stop right there. So somebody says, I was beside the Father as the master craftsman at creation. We jump over to the New Testament. Paul tells us that it was by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus that all things were made. So who is the master craftsman of creation? All right, you follow me. Jesus was the master craftsman at creation. So he goes, at creation, I was beside the Father. I was beside God as the master craftsman. And look what it says. And I was daily his delight. You wonder what Jesus and the Father were doing for trillions of years before the Bible was written? Before Genesis 1 happens, what were they doing? Did they just sit around and watch Netflix or something? I mean, what did the Father and the Son do all that time? I tell you, Jesus said, I was beside my Father, and I was the recipient of his delight. You know what the word delight means? It actually means pleasure. I was the pleasure of the Father forever. The Father radiated pleasure out of his being, and I received the pleasure. His pleasure was for me. Let's keep reading. At the end of verse 30, he says, Also, I was rejoicing always before him. So he goes, I received the Father's pleasure. I was a recipient of the pleasure of God forever, and I was rejoicing before him. All right, here's that word rejoicing. You know what that word rejoicing means in the Hebrew? It means a playful, amusing laughter. Think about that. Is that that stale, sour Jesus from the Jesus flicks in the 70s? 
He said, forever, for trillions and trillions upon trillions of years, I had pleasure washing over me, and I rejoiced with playful, amusing laughter. This is the Jesus, he says, come follow me. This is the God who says, come closer. Verse 31. He goes, not only was I rejoicing, this playful laughter, I was not only rejoicing before him, he said, I was rejoicing in his inhabited world. They were making planets and having a blast at it. I mean, it was like the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father says, hey, we need a goofy-looking animal. And Jesus is like, the platypus, poof, you know, and then just the platypus scared. They're like, that's so funny. Yeah, good one. They were having fun. We need a planet that has rings around it. Oh, Saturn, poof, and they were just slinging stuff into space. And it was like, look what you did. Good one. I love that. They were playing. They were dancing. It was amusing to them. They were rejoicing in the things they were creating. Did you know you're just animated dirt? Did you know that? You come from the dirt of the earth. And he goes, I was rejoicing in the inhabited world. The Father rejoices over you. It doesn't stop there. He says, I was rejoicing before the Father, and we were, I was rejoicing also in his inhabited world. He goes, but my delight... Oh, this will preach. Get this. He said, my delight was in the sons of men. Now, what did that word delight mean? You remember verse 30? What did it mean? Pleasure. He says, forever I was the recipient of God's, I was, of God's full pleasure. Just the raging river of God's pleasure was all over my life, Jesus said. He goes, and then when I looked at the inhabited world that we made, he said, my delight. The Father, the same way you delight in me, he goes, my delight was with the sons of men. Let me ask you this. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Do you know how much you move the heart of God? The full pleasure of God flows out of his being for you. Little old you. You say, well, man, I'm kind of messed up. That's what makes this even more beautiful. That he delights in you with full pleasure, even in your weakness. Even in your immaturity. Even in your process of growing. He goes, I love you and I enjoy you and you bring me pleasure. You bring pleasure to God. Just know that the mountains in all of their splendor do not move God the way you do. The stars and all of their brightness, all of their radiant glory do not move God's heart the way you do. Settle this in your spirit today. Receive it by faith. Even if you don't feel the reality, just say, oh, I know it's true. I move God's heart. I bring him pleasure. 
His delight is in me. One of my callings in my life here on this side of eternity on this planet is to teach the book of Song of Songs. And there's a couple of passages in, in there that I think um, uh, illustrate what, I, what I've just been talking about. Song of Songs, verse, chapter 4, verse 9. This is the beloved, the bridegroom, speaking to his, his, his love. And he says, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eye. So this is a love poem, but I think it's an illustration of how God feels about his people. He says, you have ravished my heart with a single glance. We've taught on the Song of Solomon here a few times. You guys have, have heard me say this, but a glance is quick, right? All right, everybody look up here. I'm going to glance. Don't miss it. Here we go. Ready? One, two, three. All right, that's all a glance is. He says just this ravishes my heart. Even a tiny glance from your eye. You just look my way for a split second. He goes, I, I get butterflies. The word ravish my heart is actually talking about that feeling in your stomach, that butterfly, that, that take my breath away kind of feeling. He goes, a simple glance ravishes my heart. Think about that. And then think about this. You were not made just a glance. You were made to lock your gaze on him. If a simple glance takes his breath away, if a simple glance ravishes his heart, what does it do to him when we turn and fully lock our gaze on him? You know the answer? Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verses 4 and the 5. He goes, oh, you are beautiful as Tirzah. You are lovely as Jerusalem, like an army with banners. Then he says in verse 5, turn your eyes from me because they have overcome me. He's crying, uncle. He's like, uncle, just stop. I give up. Turn your gaze from me. I can't handle it. You have conquered my heart. Think about that. This is the God who's captain of the armies of heaven. The God who splits the sea. The God who shakes the ground in Psalm 18. The God who can't be defeated. We sing the song, you've never lost a battle. Oh, but he allows his heart to be conquered by the gaze of his people. You have overcome me. This is how God feels about you. Guys, this is the God who says, draw near to me. Sounds like a relationship I want to be in on. Am I the only one? Three of you, awesome. Guys, it's the God who feels this way about you in Exodus when he, he told Moses, he goes, I want you to go down and build a sanctuary for me because it's there I want to interact with my people. The very idea of God coming to dwell with man wasn't just so I could dwell with man so I could punish him when he does wrong. He goes, I want to dwell with men so that we can interact together. I want closeness. I want nearness with you. So as we journey into intimacy with God, we're going to find out that God wows us with his beauty. He's just other than. He's just awesome. And it's that God who goes, I also want to woo you into my heart. I want to woo you into this place of intimacy.
And then we're going to discover that God also wins us with his love. He wows us with his beauty. He woos us with his gladness and pleasure. And he wins us with his love. Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. Turn there with me quickly. Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. This is Paul and this great apostolic prayer. He says, Paul's praying. He goes, I pray that you would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What did he just say? He says, I want you to know the love of God which passes knowledge. I want you to know something that you can't know. That's what it sounds like it's saying. I want you to know the love of God which is beyond your, your, your ability to know. Well, what's he talking about? That word know, it's not talking this. That's what when we hear the word, I want you to know the love of God. Yeah, I know it. That word know actually means an experiential knowledge. He goes, I want you to experience the love of God, which far surpasses any experience you've ever had. It far surpasses all other experience. And when he gives, I want you to lay hold of this. He goes, I want you to comprehend this. That word is actually a word that talks about to reach out and to lay hold and make it your own. Like, this is mine. He goes, I want you to comprehend it. Lay hold of this truth. Take this truth and make it personal. That God's love is an experience unlike any experience you could ever have. Paul tells us that in verse 19, he says, I want you to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge so that, this is key, so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Do you know that experiencing the love of God is the key to you walking in the fullness of your destiny. He goes, I want you to experience the love of God so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. You can't walk in the fullness of God unless, you've, unless you taste of his unending love for you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. This we know, for the Bible tells us so. I quoted the scripture this morning. It's probably one of the most quoted scriptures in the whole Bible. Even non-believers at sporting events and wrestling events can quote this scripture. You see it posted everywhere. John 3, 16. Everybody say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What are those first few words of that verse? For God so loved. He loved you so much. He goes, I'll, I love you so much. I'll go to any lengths. I'll even send my own son to die for you. He won us with his love. We are his purchased possession. It is no longer I that live, but now Christ lives in me. With his love, from the place of love, 
He reached out while we were yet still sinners. Christ died for us. And then in one of the most stunning passages, you guys have got to see this, John 15. Turn to John 15. And yes, I'm, I'm nearing the end here of the first sermon. John 15. I know you guys are going to go read Revelation 4 this week. That's part of your assignment. The other thing I want you to read is go read John 15, 16, and 17 and just sit there in holy awe. I believe these, are three, these three chapters are some of the most significant chapters in this hour right now for the church. John 15, we're going to look at verse 9. John 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, As the Father loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. We could spend the next couple of decades and just preach on that verse on Sunday mornings for decades and never get to the end of the depths of that verse. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me. Okay, let me ask you, how much does the Father love the Son? Okay, let's put it this way. Is the Son also God? How much does God love God? How perfectly does God love God? It's the essence of perfect love. It is love. God is love. He goes, and Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, Jesus is looking at his disciples, weak and broken men, and they were absolutely weak and broken. If you go read through the Gospels, they had issues. He goes, with the perfect flow, the perfect essence of love itself, the way the Father loves me, I love you you. And then he says this, stay here. Stay in, this, stay in that place. Abide in my love. The word abide just means to live there, to take up residence. He goes, park it there for a while. Don't leave that place. You see, we don't graduate from intimacy with God onto other things. Intimacy with God is not a stepping stone to some other thing. It's the goal. God himself is the goal. Abide in my love. Abide in this reality that I love you with the everlasting love that the Father loves me. So Jesus is saying that he loves us, though we're weak and immature, with the same intensity and zeal that the Father loves him. God's love never fails. God's love never ends. God's love never diminishes. You are loved by the God of incomprehensible beauty, of unspeakable joy, and immeasurable pleasure. And since we're in John 15, so one of the hindrances for us abiding in that place, one of the things that keeps us from really walking in that reality that we are loved and enjoyed by God is our weakness. Because we mess up. We do the thing we don't want to do. We don't do the thing we want to do. Then sometimes we even do the thing, and then we start bargaining with God. Okay, I promise you, I promise you, I'll never do that again. Just get me out of this mess. I promise. The next day, oh, man, I did it again. 
And then that reality, then the enemy comes in, and he starts going, yeah, look at you, you little hypocrite. You say God loves you. Look at what you did. Look at the mess you made. God, he, yeah, he loves you because he has to. He's God. He doesn't really enjoy you, though. And so how do we do that? How, we, how do we handle that? John 15. We're going to read verses 14 and 15. Look at them with me. Verse 14, you are my friends if. Pause. We call this a conditional statement, right? This is a conditional statement. There's a condition. There's a if this, then this. That's a conditional statement. He goes, I call you friends. You are my friends if, here's a condition, you do whatever I command you. All right, now with a show of hands, who can in here can say, I do everything the Lord commands me to do? Everything the Lord has commanded us to do, I do it all. Anybody, raise your hand. So we don't. Wait a minute, God just said he only calls us friends if we do that. Right? But we don't, all, we don't do that. Well, rats, I guess we're not friends. Let's keep reading. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friend. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. All right, let's unpack that, and then we'll close. I call you friend if you do whatever I command you to do. Well, God, I don't do whatever I command you to do. I call you friend. What's happening? Think back to where we started this morning, Genesis chapter 1. God spoke, and he said what? Light. What happened? Light came forth out of nothing. There was darkness. He said, light come forth, and light came forth out of darkness. In the same way, he says, I, you, I can only call you friend if you walk in obedience. I don't walk in obedience. Friend. Light. Come forth out of darkness. When he calls us friend, even in our weakness, in our immaturity, in our disobedience, when he's calling us friend, he's calling wholehearted obedience and pulling it out of us. He calls things that are not as though they are. I didn't obey you. Friend, God, I want to be wholehearted. Friend, friend, light, light. He, when he speaks friend over you, into your darkness, into that void, he's calling forth wholehearted obedience and love. So you feel weak and you feel immature, go stand before God and say, call me friend. Say it over me again. Speak friendship into my life so that wholehearted obedience will arise out of my life. So once again, I want to say, this is the God who says, come close. Let's stand. We hope you've enjoyed this episode from Calvary Community Church Podcast. For more content and information about Calvary Community Church, please visit our website at calvaryhouston.com.